Now, as I explained to you just a moment ago, Isaiah chapters 30 and 31 are very similar. Uh, both chapters rebuke Jerusalem's alliance with Egypt. Uh, as you well know, Jerusalem was terrified at this point in history because they knew that the Assyrians were about to invade them. And knowing well that she did not have the strength to match the Assyrian forces, Jerusalem turned to Egypt for help. And everyone in Jerusalem thought that this was a brilliant strategy. If a superpower is about to come against you, you align yourself with another superpower. And so everyone celebrated when Jerusalem sent envoys to Egypt requesting help, and Egypt actually agreed. Now, by the way, uh, they break their promise later, but they don't know that just yet. So everyone thought this was a brilliant idea, and everyone was celebrating that Egypt was coming to their help. Everyone was celebrating except Isaiah. He must have seemed like a wet blanket. And because while everyone was celebrating Isaiah, he alone saw Jerusalem's move to, to enter into an alliance with Egypt. He saw that not as wisdom, but as folly. And Isaiah saw that move not as a life-saving measure, but Isaiah saw that as Jerusalem digging her own grave. You see, because Jerusalem, the southern kingdom of Judah, was asking Egypt to do what God alone can do. And by turning to Egypt, Jerusalem put her trust in someone who could neither save nor help her. But instead, Jerusalem put her trust in Egypt only to ensure her shame, defeat, and death. And so what, this, uh, what these two chapters confront us with, uh, with is the question, and that is our first point, what can God do? What can God do? Now, again, Isaiah chapters 30 and 31 are very similar. And that tells us something. Because for something as important as this, Isaiah could not stop after just one sermon. For something as important as this, Isaiah could not give up after only a little pleading with Jerusalem. In fact, if you think about the fact that the book of Isaiah devotes a great amount of space to this very issue about Jerusalem seeking help from Egypt, and it's not just these two chapters, but other parts of Isaiah as well, that alone tells us something very important. And what that tells us is that God patiently, persistently pleaded with his people to live by faith and to do what is right. And that is why we hear these words of deep frustration and judgment 
I know we didn't read chapter 30, but I will refer back to the chapter time to time this morning. And I think it will be helpful if today or sometime this week you spend some time reading chapters 30 and 31 back to back. But if you look at chapter 30, verse 1, this is what the Lord says through Isaiah. Ah, stubborn children, declares the Lord, who carry out a plan but not mine, who make an alliance but not of my spirit, that they may add sin to sin. What's the Lord talking about? He is talking about Jerusalem forming an alliance with Egypt. And now chapter 31, verse 1. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses, who trust in chariots because they are many, and in horsemen because they are very strong. But do not look to the Holy One of Israel or consult the Lord. You see, the only thing more consistent than God's pleading with Jerusalem was how consistently and how stubbornly Jerusalem revolted against God. The Lord sent his prophets. He sent Isaiah pleading with them over and over and over. Jerusalem, in turn, over and over and over revolted against the Lord. But why? Why would you do that? Well, you see, I mean, from human perspective, we can almost understand because Jerusalem looked at the threat of Assyria and they said, what can God do? What can God possibly do about this? Because when they thought about the threat of Assyria, they realized and they thought what they really needed were boots on the ground. They needed spears, arrows, and swords. And it turns out Egypt had plenty of them, and Egypt was willing to share. And so they said, what can God do? But Egypt, Egypt can help us. So they put their trust in Egypt's chariots because they are many, and they put their trust in horsemen because they are very strong. You might, if you want to put this in modern contemporary words, it might say a, a small threatened nation putting their trust in Russia, for example. But they have a great army, many tanks, aircraft carriers, submarines. And that's what Jerusalem did. And as for the Holy One of Israel, what can he possibly do? Now, here's something that we need to understand because unbelief in God is necessarily faith in something else. Now, contrary to popular myths, whether we decide to trust in God or not is not a decision between faith and reason. You know, we hear that a lot from unbelievers, right? It's a decision between trusting in faith, blind faith, they say, and trusting in solid reason. Actually, that's a myth because unbelief in God is not about choosing between faith and reason, but it is rather between choosing one faith 
over against another faith. So Jerusalem's unbelief is not uh, making a decision between faith in God versus reason. Rather, Jerusalem is acting out of faith that Egypt, who was once her slave master, is now going to preserve her freedom. That's faith. To look to Egypt where you were slaves and in bondage and to think now our former slave masters is going to come and protect us and ensure that we remain free. That's faith. And it was faith, not reason, calling on Egypt to come and help when they knew that God had defeated Egypt. That's not reason. It's faith. It's a misplaced faith, but it is not reason. Unbelief in God is not a choice between faith and reason. It's it's a choice between one set of faith and a different set of faith. And the question for you and for me is this. When life becomes unbearable and we see no way forward in our own strength, in whom do we trust? Upon whose words and strength do we stake our present and our future? And surely what God says of Egypt is true of all our false saviors. So chapter 31, verse 3, the Egyptians are man and not God, and their horses are flesh and not spirit. When the Lord stretches out his hand, the helper will stumble, and he who is helped will fall, and they will all perish together. And what the Lord is saying is that Jerusalem, because she put her faith and trust in something that is no help at all, Jerusalem's faith in Egypt will cause both her and Egypt to stumble. Egypt is not able to help, especially because God was bringing Assyria against Jerusalem himself in order to chastise Jerusalem. Against that purpose and will, Egypt cannot stand, and she cannot possibly carry the heavy weight of expectations that Jerusalem places on her. Because Egypt, after all, is only man. And her resources also are beset with mortal weakness. That is to say, who is your helper in life's hard trials? When life becomes challenging and difficult, where do you turn? Because unless our help is God, both we and the thing that we trust to save us will stumble and fall. Are you looking for peace and security and blessing? And don't trust man for what only God can do. No one but God 
can bear the heavy weight of our expectations. And the thing is that God, God, He is glad and He is willing to bear our burdens. And when we make God our help, you remember what Jesus said, I will send you another helper. When He comes to help us, neither the helper nor the one who is helped will ever stumble. That's the difference. We trust in man, then the one that we look to help us and we ourselves will stumble. When we make God our help, our helper is strong and in his help we will not stumble. So that's the first question that these chapters raise for us. What can God do? Second question, a second point is an answer. It turns out that God can do quite a lot. Again, chapters 30 and 31 are very similar in that they both address Assyria, but they both make the same point that Assyria is not a threat at all. Chapter 30, verse 33, this is how chapter 30 ends. For a burning place has long been prepared. Indeed, for the king it is made ready. Its pyre made deep and wide with fire and wood in abundance. The breath of the Lord, like a stream of sulfur, kindles it. Now, that's a word. It's an ominous word toward Assyria because even as Assyria marches against Jerusalem, drunk with its own sense of power and destiny, you see, Assyria dreams of world dominion, and she is confident in her power. But the fact of the matter is, it was the Lord himself who was bringing Assyria against Jerusalem, and it was the Lord's purpose to reward Assyria for her desires of violence, dominion, to reward her so that her, her uh, campaign against God's city and God's people will end up being their own funeral. That's God's purpose. God will throw their corpses on burning pyre and they will be nothing more than smoke and ash in the end. Now, we will come to that actually in a few chapters, and it will be exciting. But that's what God is going to do. And God is making a point. You fear Assyria so much, and because of that, you live in unbelief, and you dismiss me, but you will see what I will do with Assyria. She thinks she is powerful. She thinks she is unstoppable. And she is campaigning against you, marching against you. But you just wait and see because it's going to be her own funeral. I will show you my power. And again, chapter 31, verse 4. As a lion or a young lion growls over his prey, and when a band of shepherds is called out against him, he is not terrified by their shouting or daunted 
at their noise. So the Lord of hosts will come down to fight on Mount Zion and on its hill. The Lord is comparing himself to a young lion who is hunched over its, its, its prey that it has killed. And imagine a, a young lion in its power. And then there's a bunch of scared shepherds making panic noise to chase it away. Does the lion care? Not at all. That's what God is comparing himself against the powers of Assyria because the powers of Egypt and Assyria are just like the panic noises of shepherds who cower in fear. They are nothing to God. And so the Lord says in verse 8, And the Assyrian shall fall by a sword, not of man, and not a sword, not of man, shall devour him, declares the Lord, whose fire is in Zion and whose furnace is in Jerusalem. Once again, it's going to be their funeral. God is going to reduce them to be nothing but smoke and ash. And God's absolute power definitively, definitively answers Jerusalem's unbelief. Jerusalem kept saying, what can God do? Well, he can easily dispatch Jerusalem's foes. He can very easily deal with Jerusalem's worst and greatest problems. Now, I want you to see something here. Uh, God never rebukes his people for being anxious. And God never rebukes his people for being fearful. Because if you read scriptures, when God sees his people anxious and fearful, what he always does, he encourages them. He draws them to himself. And one of the most frequently made statements in the entire Bible is, fear not. You see, that's what we need to understand. Jerusalem's sin is not being fearful. Jerusalem's sin is not being anxious because whenever God sees his people worried, fearful, and anxious, he doesn't get angry at them. He comforts them. He encourages them. He says, come to me. I will give you rest. Fear not, I am with you. Of course, they should have been worried. It's, they were facing a tragedy. But God does not rebuke them, and he does not judge them for being anxious or being fearful, but he does rebuke them for refusing to turn to him for help. And he rebukes them for staking her life and future on what is no help at all. And loved ones, we, you and I, we need to think better of God. God does not rebuke you if in the hardness of life you become afraid and anxious and fearful. No, he does not rebuke you and he is not angry at you. He will rather encourage you. He will rather say to you, fear not. 
come to me? The problem is that we also keep saying, what can God do? What can he possibly do? And so we need to think better of God. There is no foe that God cannot protect us from. There is no situation which is too great for his power, and there is no risk that he cannot manage, and he will gladly do it for you. And so thirdly and finally, we sum sum up these two chapters with trusting in God who is able Trusting in God who is able. God does not need horses or chariots to save his people because his sword is not like the sword of man. God delivers by his promise and God delivers, he saves by his word. And so the word that he speaks is the power that he saves. Look at chapter 31, verse 2. He is wise and brings disaster. He does not call back his words, but will rise against the house of the evildoers and against the helpers of those who work iniquity. God judges with his word, and God's word has the power to destroy. But his word also saves So chapter 31, verse 6. Turn to him from whom people have deeply revolted, O children of Israel. And if we read chapter 30, we read exactly how the house of Israel, children of Israel, revolted against God. Chapter 30, verses 9 through 11. They revolted against God by saying to Isaiah and to the prophets, Do not prophesy to us what is right. Speak to us smooth things. Prophesy illusions. Let us hear no more about the Holy One of Israel. That's how they revolted against God. They never told Isaiah to stop preaching. They never told the prophets to stop talking about God. What they did say was, stop talking to us about God's holiness. Stop talking to us about God's righteousness. Stop saying things to us that make us feel bad. Just tell us what makes us feel good about ourselves. That's how they revolted against God. Paul says something about that, right? In the last days, people will flock to hear what their itching ears want to hear. We're fine with God. We're fine with you telling us about God as long as it's about how everything will turn out fine and how he loves us. He has wonderful plans for our lives. But please, don't talk to us about his holiness. Don't talk to us about repentance. Don't talk to us about righteousness. Don't talk to us about trusting in God in hard places. And because that is how they revolted against God, their repentance needs to be something very specific. 
their repentance needs to be submitting to God's word in all its searching power to expose sin and to apply his cure. And so when God says through Isaiah, turn to him, it means something very specific. It means that we trust God, that he reigns with power and sovereignty to guide us. And again, if you read in chapter 30, verse 20, we read how God uses the bread of adversity and the water of affliction in order to make us fit for his dwelling and glory. The bread of adversity and the water of affliction. But he does that. He feeds his people the bread of adversity and the water of affliction in order to make them fit for his kingdom, not to, not to shut them out of his kingdom. And he feeds them the bread of adversity and the water of affliction in order to make them fit for glory, not to bring them shame. And so when afflictions, hardships, trials, and difficulties come to you, don't say, what can God do? But say rather, with Paul. You remember what he said in chapter 8, Romans 8, verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him, with Christ, graciously give us all things? Loved ones, are you, are you surviving on bread of adversity and the water of affliction today? Maybe you've become bitter. Maybe you've become downcast, and you find yourself saying, God has left me. What can God possibly do? Remember this, that he gave his son for you, and he who gave his son to you will not withhold anything that is good. In Jesus' name, amen. Now let's pray. Father, we thank you and praise you for your commitment to us. Surely, Jerusalem proved over and over again how she was so undeserving of your love and of your care. And yet, it was never about what they deserved, but all about what you had committed to do, to be gracious, to be loving, to restore, to heal. And so we take comfort in that this morning. Lord, we know ourselves. We know that we are truly undeserving of your love and of your care, and we are often afraid. We are afraid that you might abandon us or leave us. But help us to remember, too, that it is never about what we deserve, but what Jesus has accomplished for us, what he is deserving. 
and that he, because of what he has done, deserves a bride that is whole, pure, undefiled, and glorified. So help us to rest in Jesus and help us to rest in your grace and in your love. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.